Hey there, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Dan Shapir. Hey, from a still warm and sunny Tel Aviv, mid-November. Isn't it wonderful? AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from the no-shave shed. Nice, I'm in that shed too. By the way, it's 20 degrees Fahrenheit here, which is below zero in Celsius. So I'm not even going to talk about warm and sunny. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. Big shout out. I got the developer book club launched. You can go to topenddevs.com slash book club. Yay. Uh, Congratulations. Yeah, we're reading uh, Clean Architecture starting on December 7th. It's our first call. And if you can't make it, we're recording them too. So anyway, we have a special guest this week and it is... I'm going to chicken out and just say Flocky, and he can tell you what his name is. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Flocky works for most people, but the long version of that is Ishvan Smoczynski. I'm originally Hungarian, but I'm coming at you at the very snowy and absolutely not sunny Tallinn, Estonia. So Dan was just doing that despite all of us. <laughs> for sure. He was just rubbing it in our faces. I have to ask. So I didn't hear Flocky in Istvan, however you said your name. So where does Flocky come from? Yeah, Flocky is, goes back like very boring, like 20 years ago. If any of you is old enough to have played and like nerd enough to have played any mods, like uh-huh. uh, multi-user dungeons, this is like the text version of like what we call to do MMO. Oh, like Rogue and stuff like, like that? Yeah, like you type into a terminal, like you uh, like literally use like Telnet to connect to a server and then you, you know, kick Rat, oh, the good old you, days. And it, it tells you that you just kick the rat and like you 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 gain like three experience. A Christ knife. So sort of You're thing. supposed to try to get yeah. the Christ knife. <laughs> yeah, so I was playing one of that and my character was called Falcon Master, which was like a druid or something. And so like that basically evolved. I, I was really adamant in like high school, like that people call me Falcon Master now and they're like they were not taking my bullshit, so they were like, oh yeah, yeah like that just evolved into like Falky and Flocky eventually, and just like stayed with it. Hmm. All right, well, you can be our resident Wasm Druid. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood. I've been talking to a whole bunch of people that want to update their resume and find a better job. And I figure, well, why not just share my resume? So you, if you go to topendevs.com slash resume, enter your name and email address, then you'll get a copy of the resume that I use that I've used through freelancing through most of my career as I've kind of refined it and tweaked it to get me the jobs that I want. Uh, Like I said, topendevs.com slash resume will get you that. And uh, you can just kind of use the formatting. It comes in Word and Pages formats, and you can just fill it in from there. Dan, you invited Flocky onto the show, so I'm a little curious if there's some context you want to give before we get rolling. Yeah, for sure. So we had some episodes recently in which Wasm came up. In the, we we talked. I think we mentioned is that what's that the drawing software that uses Wasm, the one that got acquired by Adobe. Figma, that's it. And we also kind of contrasted it with edge computing because we were talking about technologies that on the face of it seems like they, they're very useful and very interesting, but I'm not sure of the applicability to the mainstream. Anyway, WASM is a topic that kept coming up for some reason or another, and Flucky is like the WASM guru that I know. So I thought that it would be awesome to have him on the show to un- talk about what it is because I'm assuming most of our listeners have never actually ever tried it. And also to kind of understand what it's really good for now after all these years. All right, those are some big shoes to fill. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, honestly, I've been giving a bunch of talks like in the before times about WebAssembly. And back then, I would usually tell people, and I still think like this is increasingly the case. It's like a lot of people don't really actually have to know about WebAssembly and still take advantage of it, right? Like th there's like so many like tiny things, like the newest Webpack has like a WebAssembly, a tiny bit of WebAssembly in it to generate hashes. That was like a bunch of issues with like Webpack using hashes and these being like super slow. And then like, you know, Node deprecated these hashes because like Webpack was using some like Node library, like Node built in like a hash generation that was just like very insecure and like, you know, but we don't need cryptographic hashes. These are really just like content hashes. And like, there was all these like turmoil about deprecating and that's breaking all sorts of software. And so they have like this tiny bit of WebAssembly module inside Webpack. And like, if you actually search like the Webpack repo, you couldn't even find it. It doesn't have like a WebAssembly extension because it's actually in line. I think it's assembly script as like a hundred, a thousand characters of assembly script inside the Webpack repo, I think this is Webpack 6, that is compiled during build time to WebAssembly and just included into Webpack. And it, use, it uses or can use, I don't know if it's like default, but like it uses WebAssembly to generate like hashes like so much faster and like without having to depend on like cryptographic hashes included in Node.js, that sort of stuff. It's like people don't even know the thing like uses WebAssembly that they're, they're actually using. <laughs> So going back to my original comment, maybe we should like go back a little bit because like I said, I, my guess, and I think it's a fairly safe guess, is that while many of our listeners might have heard of WebAssembly, hardly any of them ever used it. And consequently, I think probably their knowledge about it is a bit vague. So maybe it's worthwhile to kind of backtrack and talk about what is WebAssembly, where it came from, what it is, what can it do, how it differs from just writing code in JavaScript, where does it run, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, yeah, that's that's a really good point. They have a whole talk about like the whole history of WebAssembly. But I think what the more important, the most important thing to know about the history of WebAssembly is that it didn't just like, you know, some gurus of engineers like sit down and like conceive it, but it comes from a lineage of technologies that have been trying for years to kind of improve execution speed in the browser. And partly from the like lineage of like, we have a bunch of like pre-existing code that we want to run on the web, but we don't want to port it to JavaScript, like hand port that code to JavaScript. Kind of these were like one of the two main motivating factors that led to technologies like SMGS and like eventually like everybody kind of came up with their own like way to deport like code from like C or C++ or languages that like pre-existing code and run it in the browser. So there, there were like these multiple kind of um, underpinnings to, to why people wanted the technology for like this reason or that reason. And everybody kind of had their own, like Google had this knuckle pinnacle technology. And like everybody's kind of trying to do their own thing. And WebAssembly came as a very unexpected to me. Like browser vendors never agree on anything. <laughs> like it's very hard to get like browser vendors to agree on, on, on something like this. And like WebAssembly was basically a culmination of like the pinnacle and SMJS effort of like trying to ditch these like technologies that were trying to solve these problems and kind of unify them into 
into what WebAssembly is doing. You know, usually how this happens is, is like the classic XKCD, there is no 15 standards. There's no one unifying standard. And somehow they managed to pull this off with WebAssembly. Pinnacle went away. SMJS still exists like for uh, historical code, but like they have this technology now that like fulfills this need to be able to compile existing code in other languages to run in the browser and also to use uh, languages that are not JavaScript to compile some piece of code that can run much faster in a browser than like JavaScript built in, like the default JavaScript. Uh, then to, to use some other language to compile some code into the browser that would run faster than canonical JavaScript code would be running. And so they, they kind of used all of these to create a technology that like fulfills these needs. So WebAssembly effectively, and that's, I think, the important thing to stress, is, an, is a compilation target. It's basically people coming and saying around saying, we're using JavaScript both as a programming language and as a compilation target because we had various programming language compiling into JavaScript. And that's not an ideal use case for JavaScript. So instead of compiling to JavaScript, let's compile to something lower level that can run at quote-unquote machine code speeds in the browser, right? Yeah, correct. yeah, exactly. Some of the early inspirational predecessors like SMJS was was doing exactly that. Like we had like a lot of languages compiling to JavaScript you know, going back all the way to the CoffeeScript times. But SMJS was really like we're not even trying to 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 have people handwrite this code like this other language. Like we just want to take something like C++ and compile it to the browser. And yeah, people have been like realizing that that had a lot of like drawbacks, a lot of issues with that, like parsing JavaScript code that was compiled to SMJS, like that could be like several tens of megabytes was really slow and that could not be improved like because of how like you had to like kind of maintain compatibility with the language and like a lot of that reasons basically like people just wanted to re-architect something like when you go to the WebAssembly homepage when you go to the WebAssembly homepage it will say it's a stack-based virtual machine and like, you know, a lot of like very interesting words. But like what it really means is that it's a very limited instruction set. It's almost like machine code that is like similarly to like computer architectures, like like a virtual processor, basically. Like similarly how you would compile to x86 or like to the new M1 or M2 Apple Macs, like the ARM processors in those Macs, you could compile to WebAssembly as a compilation target. And like it has its own instructions that are platform independent after after you've done the compilation. One thing that I'm kind of curious about, and I don't know if you know, I, I have some guesses, but I don't know like an official answer is why did they come up with another effectively another virtual machine rather than let's say use the JVM or use .NET or something like that? Because these are two existing virtual machines, you know, that fairly popular do you know or, or is that they're like do they did they have technical needs that are different like i know that the jvm is, is pretty tightly bound to java so maybe that was a consideration also it has a lot of baggage in the form of various services like garbage collect the jvm garbage collection etc so maybe they didn't want that i don't know but i'm curious i'm honestly don't 
I'm not sure. Like, I don't really know what is the, the moderating factor. I definitely think like WebAssembly as it happened, I definitely think that WebAssembly as it happened came out very different than any of the existing bytecode languages, particularly uh, one of the things that that is limiting WebAssembly's adoption today is the the fact that it is still like a kind of proof of concept. Like uh, they called it the WebAssembly MVP, which was basically, I mean, that was the result. That, that was the reason why people um, could agree, like Microsoft, Microsoft, Apple, Mozilla, and Google could Apple uh, could agree that oh yeah, we want this like technology in the browser. And and like they could agree on like what to ship eventually is that they shipped a very minimal set of WebAssembly features that exactly catered for these needs of like uh, running fast, being able to parse it fast, and compiling the browser fast, like make streaming compilation. All of these properties that they had in mind, they kind of tailor made this language, this instruction set for 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 that approach, and a lot of the other features that they couldn't like write off the bat, like agree on. All the, the features that they couldn't agree on, they went on and they're like, okay, we're going to punt this after actually people had some time to, to work this uh, work with this programming language and like give us some feedback or not programming, like, work with WebAssembly. So they were like, okay, we're going to go ahead, give this MVP to people. After they gave us some feedback, we're going to use that to iterate on some of these other concepts that we couldn't agree on previously. We're going to spend some more time on it and bring those back. So I would think that must have contributed is that they had very specific needs in mind and they they wanted to pare down like the bare minimum like they wanted to bear down their requirements to the bare minimum to be able to ship this in a browser and how do you actually ship WebAssembly code to the browser i mean how do uh, let's let's say i say okay this is really cool i would like to develop for the web in c++ or in rust i think or i know that there are a variety of programming languages these days that compile to to WebAssembly. how do i even <laughs> what what do i do very good point there are there are some programming languages that provide and some frameworks really that you could use and ship end to end code into a browser so I know there's this framework in Rust that's called U Y E W that basically U lets you write code in Rust. This is a Rust framework and compile that Rust code into WebAssembly, not just writing the code business logic, but also the, the interactions with the user interface and the interactions with the DOM inside U as well. You could even like embed inline JavaScript and things like that. And it has some glue code that it takes care for you. But this is right now not really the primary target, mostly because of the MVP nature of WebAssembly. Have skimmed on making a bunch of features available that that are necessary to make this really convenient and really useful or, or really like fast even to write like like you said, a to write something in like C++ and then move that over to the browser. What is more, what people do more, more prevalent right now with the current version of WebAssembly is people get some piece of uh, code, whether they got that library from somewhere or they wrote that from scratch and use that code to compile like some very core business logic to the to WebAssembly and use it in their 
front-end application and other. There's tools to, to help make that happen. One of the early tools that existed into the ASMJS era, and that is one of the core tools or main tools today for, for doing that is mscripten. So you could totally use mscripten to generate some C++ code, or generate WebAssembly from some C++ code, and that will eventually end up in the browser. mscripten will take care of applying a bunch of glue code for you. So if your code is literally a game or a WebGL application uh, or like an OpenGL application, mscripten can actually take care of like translating that into an OpenGL application. Uh, from can actually take care of translating an OpenGL application to WebGL and will just give you a canvas in the browser. And so you don't have to worry about the front end stuff. But like that, that really is currently not really possible <laughs> because of all of these technologies. And some of those actually just landed. Um, there's a standardization process ongoing for a lot of these missing features, like in-process features. For example, garbage collection or like object references. Many of these features are required to make this interaction between WebAssembly and the browser both fast or even possible. What a lot of people don't realize today is WebAssembly, the specification, it has nothing to do with the web or JavaScript at all. WebAssembly has been split up to various different pieces of specifications. And this core specification to WebAssembly itself is agnostic to the browser. It has nothing to do with the browser. It literally just describes the virtual machine semantics. Where the interactions with the web browser happen is called the JavaScript embedder or like the web embedder, which is basically specifying an environment for the, virtu- uh, the WebAssembly virtual machine and providing some escape hatches, providing some APIs to interact with this WebAssembly virtual machine. And so when this happens, when you are interacting with your WebAssembly code, a lot of things are still not possible because WebAssembly doesn't know what a JavaScript object is. Like complex objects are opaque to WebAssembly right now. WebAssembly ships with four four value types, just integers and floats really, and doesn't really know what happens when you want to give it like a JavaScript object or like uh, want to give it a WebGL function or WebGL object. So a lot of these interactions are not defined in a current specification because they are being currently being worked on. There are mostly ways to, to overcome these, like writing your own glue code or writing your own bindings between these two languages or letting a tool like the mscripten I mentioned take care of some of these, some of this work for you. But there are definitely hurdles in the uh, developer experience. Right yeah, now. that's kind of what I hear about WebAssembly, that like the, the, the two biggest limitations that are that have for years prevented wider adoption are the ones that you mentioned, which is first the a, the lack of a garbage collector, which means that any language, any programming language that relies on garbage collection that you want to compile into WebAssembly, you actually have to implement your own garbage collection on top of WebAssembly and ship that with your code, which obviously significantly inflates your code because you're effectively needing kind of delivering a part of the operating system, as it were. And I, I think that Blazor from Microsoft does something like that. But anyway, so so that's one hurdle. And the other hurdle, which, is, which you mentioned, is indeed the fact that the communication between WebAssembly 
and the DOM is kind of impossible. It cannot, it can hardly interact directly with the DOM. Instead, it needs to go through a JavaScript bridge, like tell JavaScript code that gets shipped along with it to interact with the DOM for it. But like you said, even that interaction is kind of difficult because you effectively need to have that JavaScript code serialize everything into byte arrays or word arrays and uh, and then you know post that over to the uh, WebAssembly code, which does whatever it does and then kind of throws it over the fence back to the JavaScript, which is obviously challenging, let's put it this way. And again, like you said, you've got uh, frameworks that kind of deal with it for you, but then obviously it kind of restricts the way that you that you go about these things because you you use these services, you know, either whether they fit your needs or not, that's all you have. This is all true, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. Garbage collection, I believe, is just just moved into was it? I think it's in phase three. Just moved to phase three at a proposal on garbage collection. This can be if somebody has been following ECMAScript, like the ECMAScript process. The WebAssembly process has been largely based off of the ECMAScript process in terms of standardization. So phase three, if I'm not mistaken, it means that garbage collection is basically in the browser implementation phase. There are some browsers that already have implementations or preliminary implementations for garbage collection. So, So garbage collection is at least coming pretty soon. And as you mentioned, like right now, pretty much everything from TinyGo to Ruby to Python, all of those languages, when you try to compile something into WebAssembly, you have to ship a garbage collector as compiled to WebAssembly into that bundle. And yeah, that is that is untenable, not just because it inflates the bundle, but because like every module then will have to have its own um, garbage collector. So every interaction between modules with their own garbage collector, it just becomes like an exploding mess of like things. So you really don't want that. And so this has been one of, one of the primary focus areas of new specification work. The other issue, as you correctly said, was translating between uh, WebAssembly and, and the browser or whatever the embedder happens to be. It doesn't have to be the browser. Now, basically, translation between or bridging between WebAssembly and the outside world. And this has been a really tough nut to crack. And there, has, there have been years of research, like bringing in the very best of programming language research into WebAssembly and exploring various ways how to... Again, there was a lot of requirements, like a lot of requirements that people had to choose what to cater for and how to make this not just for developer experience, but also a ecosystem experience from the perspective of like ecosystem experience, like tenable at least, which is the current case is what you do when you create a WebAssembly module is you really create like a monolith and you really don't want monoliths because um, I mean, the whole world has been moving away from monoliths into microservices. And like right now, that is not possible. Like you can't really build, like not easily at least, build microservices in a sense of, in the sense of WebAssembly. So you can't compose a larger WebAssembly program from WebAssembly modules or like tiny compiled WebAssembly modules because you have to hand 
define and orchestrate the interactions between these modules, not just with the outside world, but like in between the modules, like any information exchange would ha have to happen, this very lowest level of integers. And, and so, and that's like really something that if, doesn't. If I'm, if I'm, I want us to see that I understand what you're, what you're getting at. So with JavaScript, I basically can just stick script tags in the HTML and any script tag is wholly independent of any other script tag. Obviously, the, you know, they share the same global namespace so they can step on each other's feet. But ultimately, they kind of function independently. And, and the fact that I put in one script tag does not preclude me from putting in another script tag. And there are various mechanisms in which those independent scripts can collaborate. What you're saying is that with WebAssembly, that's not the case. I basically more or less need to build a single bundle and deliver it as a single bundle and not break it up into multiple bundles. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, it's more like, I think the better analogy is like what we have EDS modules or even NPM is, is you have a program and you want to, I don't know, like import Express or import like a JSON parsing library, something, something, something like that. Your program can interact with that JSON parsing library because they can exchange objects and they can talk over interfaces. It's it's fairly easy to do so. Uh, how this looks like in WebAssembly land is you either have to, for example, you're writing a piece of Rust code that you want to compile to, to WebAssembly. You can import other Rust modules and that will just work. Uh, you can import C modules because Rust allows you to do that, but you can't just import a module that was written in Python right now. Like you would have to like figure out like how to do that in Rust somehow. And at the end of the day, what you use is like the compiler in Rust in this case will generate the WebAssembly module for you from all these packages and will give you like a WebAssembly module. <laughs> what you would want here rather is to write a piece of code in Rust, compile it to WebAssembly and write a piece of code in Python, write it in WebAssembly, compile it to WebAssembly and have those basically runtime link those two together, mm. like have those modules interact with each other which is, you could do it, but you would manually have to ferry those bytes over the boundary, like from the Python code and from the Rust code. Th that's really interesting because I brought up before two other virtual machines, bytecode virtual machines that exist, the, the .NET virtual machine and the JVM. And both of them kind of, in a sense, come up with really different solutions for essentially the same problem. In the J JVM basically said, you know, everything is Java. So as long as you conform with Java, you know, you can just work. And .NET basically came up with their own kind of language agnostic way to describe objects and interfaces, which kind of sign, sounds like what WebAssembly is trying to achieve. Yeah, what is what JNI, I think, like the, the native interface. That's in that's uh, in the in the Java land. Yes, but that's I'm not very knowledgeable at C sharp, but closer to the web space, a lot of what what WebAssembly has been initially thinking about is the web ideal uh, specification. So web ideal for for those who haven't heard about it is this kind of sort of I mean I wouldn't call it language is agnostic, but more like declarative way to describe an interface between the browser and JavaScript. So WebIDL is used by browser vendors to sync or like specifications, for example, intended for the browser or the DOM. Use this WebIDL specification to create an interface that will be used by browser vendors when implementing a feature. 
So for example, when you're using a built-in browser feature or built-in API, these WebIDL interfaces define the functions and objects that generate that get generated or exposed by these APIs. So browser vendors use this as a sort of compatibility hook. Uh, so everybody implements the same functions. It gives back the same objects, all of that stuff. Because JavaScript is an untyped language. So we, we kind of need these things to, to help us put some uh, sanity into it. By the way, just a, just uh, a what have... side where you can actually easily, you know, if our listeners want to see examples of IDLs or you can easily see those, is if you go into the MDN and look up any documentation for any DOM feature, usually has towards the bottom links to the specific, to the W3C specifications. And if you click on those links, and, and look at the W3C specifications, let's say, for, I don't know, let's say, the to the location uh, object interface. You will see that it's all specified via IDLs. And it's actually fairly readable, and, and it's not too, too difficult to figure out what they mean. You know, it's, it's fairly straightforward. It's certainly anybody who's familiar with TypeScript should... Uh, be you know be able to read it fairly easily yeah and i believe to best of my knowledge that was the initial motivation to use idl not only or not even not really that it's close to the web or whatever but because they are fairly readable and fairly succinct the people working on extending WebAssembly and making this modular bridging this modular interface possible between the two worlds in this case being able to bridge WebAssembly world and the outside world and like between modules. When people came up with this, they looked at the WebIDL spec and said, okay, we can just extend this and kind of use or reuse this for our own use cases. But eventually ended up like, they eventually ended up moving away towards what they call, what what do they call them? (laughs) Type. They changed the name of this like for so many times. Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood. I'm excited because I wanted to let you know about this thing that I pulled together that I had just, I've been dying to have this for years and I never felt like I could. And then I just realized that there's no reason why I can't. So um, I'm putting together a book club and we're going to read development focused books, career books, you know, uh, technical books, whatever. The first book that we're going to do is going to be Clean Architecture by Uncle Bob Martin. If you're not familiar with Clean Code or some of the other stuff that Bob has done, Check that out. I've also talked to him on the Clean Coders podcast, which is on Top End Devs. But uh, yeah, we're going to get on. He's going to show up to some of our meetings. And what I'm thinking is we'll probably have like five or six people uh, part of the conversation along with Bob and I at the same time. And we'll just uh, so somebody can come on, they can ask their question and then we'll just rotate people through. So we'll we'll mute one person, unmute another person when it's their turn to come on and, and be part of the discussion. So we'll do that for like an hour, hour and a half. And then the other part of it that I'm putting together is just kind of a meet and greet gather area on Gather Town. And so after the the meetup and the call, what we'll do is we'll all go over to Gather Town and you can just log in, walk up to a group and have a conversation. And that way we can all kind of get to know each other and and make friends and, and get to know people across the world. Uh, one thing that I'm finding is that, yeah, the meetups are starting to come back, but a lot of people don't have the opportunity to go to a meetup. And I really want to meet you guys and talk to you. So we're going to put all that together. It'll all be part of that book club. You can go to topendevs.com slash book club to be part of it. And I'm looking forward to seeing you there. The first book club meeting will be in December, the beginning of December. We're starting the first week of December. and 
Um, you'll also be part of the conversation about which book we do next. I have one in mind, but I want to see where everybody's at. So there you go. One thing that I keep hearing about with Wasm is that, and you kind of implied this with whatever the program is that it's embedding the Wasm, right? So we talked about browsers, but I keep hearing about people running Wasm code like from the command line and stuff like that, right? So if you have a basically a VM that runs out there, you can compile stuff to, to run there, right? I mean, it's it's not, I guess, compiled to bare metal, but it, you know, you have a lot of flexibility because, yeah, you can write different parts of your code in different Wasm languages. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are you seeing widespread use of that, or is it mostly focused on the web? Yeah, I mean, not widespread, but people are starting to experiment with that. You know, what, what I said about the WebAssembly core specification not being t- tailored to the web browser in any way, people re- recognize a lot of properties of WebAssembly that they have been missing from other places. And when, when you mentioned edge computing and WebAssembly at the start, that was, that was really funny because if you look at a web browser, WebAssembly had all these properties from the very get-go, all these like needs and requirements that they needed to, to adhere to as they were developing WebAssembly. And those were all, it has to run in hostile environments. The browser is one of the most hostile environments when running third-party code in somebody's machine is always really Mm -hmm. bad and you don't want that. So very tight sandboxing, very tightly locking down all the things in WebAssembly. But also it has to ship like very small code. Dan mentioned this before that you can't just blow up your WebAssembly bundle. One of the reasons why we moved away from SMJS because they were just generating huge ASMJS like JavaScript binaries. And you really don't want that. You really want to keep size as a minimum. You want to make it, you know, compile. One of the optimizations that they made is like, when WebAssembly downloads, it has to be parsed on basically wire speed. That is as fast as the data is coming in, your browser is already translating it into its internal format. And that all of these properties, people looked at that and they were like, huh, that sounds like all the things that we need in a small embedded system, somewhere in very limited resources, something that runs fast or fast enough, <laughs> something that is very sandboxed, compiles quickly, takes up very little space. And like people are like, what if we actually use this in something like edge computing? And edge computing at the end of the day is like somebody has a bunch of server servers scattered around the world and they just decided to deploy your code in every single one of them. And if you have 160 servers or like 360 servers or thousands of them, you can put the code in every server and whoever like whichever server is closest to the user who is requesting or like who's trying to use your application, they will just run it on the server as close as possible to that user. Like that's kind of the whole deal. That's the whole shtick of edge computing. And that when when you kind of put it that way, when you phrase it that way, it kind of clicks that, oh, oh, so I need this small module because it has to be small because everybody's module, every code that I'm deploying, Cloud for Workers is doing this, right? Has to fit on everybody on my servers and I want them to be small, but I also want to have to distribute these over like the planet to a thousand servers. So the transfers, the transfer payload has to be small because I'm paying all those costs, right? And so it has to be very sandboxed. Like it has to be deeply, deeply tied down because I want to be executing multiples, like you know, tens of thousands of these modules in parallel on the same machine. And you can't just like put them all, you know, every one of them in a container. I mean, like you can, but like you're you're gonna have overheads. And 
people figured out that WebAssembly can do it. WebAssembly can do tens of thousands of modules. WebAssembly can do that, like tens of thousands of modules in, in uh, like concurrently. And like all of these, like people slowly realize that there's all these properties to WebAssembly that make it great for the web because we chose to build these properties in just make a lot of sense for a lot of other... It's really amusing because it really mirrors what we saw with JavaScript itself. I mean, you had JavaScript originally in the browser, then you had JavaScript on the server side, then you had JavaScript all over the place. You know, we had people on our show talking about edge computing, talking about embedded devices. And effectively, what you're saying is, is we're saying kind of the same thing with WebAssembly, and it's not really surprising because WebAssembly is kind of part of V8, for example. So anywhere that you can put V8, you can get WebAssembly. And the other funny thing for me is that, again, it kind of mirrors what happened with the JVM that the people these days don't remember because it was way back in the 90s. But originally, JVM started on the client side and then it kind of migrated to the back end. So now, you know, we see this, the JVM is this kind of universal back end platform, but and don't forget the DVD players exactly. and the set-top mm-hmm. boxes. So effectively, we're getting kind of a replay of you know what goes around comes around uh, happening again with WebAssembly. Yeah, interesting. It's really funny that AJ mentioned set-top boxes. You know who uses WebAssembly? Disney Plus runs WebAssembly in their set-top boxes. Not only them. Oh, who was that? Amazon. Amazon Prime runs WebAssembly in their set-top boxes. There is a talk from a couple months ago by one of the main engineers behind Amazon implementing WebAssembly in their Amazon Prime service. And basically they talk about, it's uh, they're running a web browser, right? They're running an electronish stack, so mm-hmm. they have JavaScript in there and they have C++ in the backend, but C++ is really hard to deal with. Uh, I think they start, yeah, uh, they had C++ and started replacing some of that with Rust. And then they started replacing a bunch of stuff with Rust. Like they ended up like using some WebAssembly in there as well. The, the, the same the same reason why JVM or Java runs in set-top boxes. The same cross-platform portability reason comes up for WebAssembly. It is a low footprint, high performance language that you can use with today's compilers to generate code, and you can put it into and especially for things like set-top boxes and like embedded devices in general, you you want to be able to iterate quickly. So WebAssembly payloads you can just put into these devices in a ways that you couldn't just like put like C++ or update the firmware on them. And while you could do a lot, but a bunch of this stuff in the client side, when you're using some React-ish framework, like on the front end to build your documentary and display that, that stuff in the television screen or something, that is, you're losing a bunch of performance. So if you could go with an in-between, write the code in Rust or reuse the code that you already written in Rust, put them in between, ship them as WebAssembly, and keep you know the low-fluff stuff and the front-end, you could totally do that and improve performance without actually breaking the bank or like spending a bunch of time on, on, on engineering. But going back to Dan's, what, you, what Dan mentioned is like, there's this whole, we're, we're walking this path of, of like, increasingly like, I, I when I when I think about what you just said I kind of harken back to what I said in 2019 when I was talking about WebAssembly and how WebAssembly is kind of just using the web ecosystem to bootstrap itself having npm like being able to deploy WebAssembly at scale 
just makes a lot of sense and lets you gain a lot of dog fooding experience from the from the effort. But people are as people are discovering the properties of WebAssembly that they could use for these other reasons that I mentioned before. It's going to spread out, but like that initial bootstrap, like the, just a huge scale of the JavaScript ecosystem, and as you mentioned, the fact that wherever, like in a modern browser or wherever you run V8 today, you can just run WebAssembly, and that goes from Dino to Node.js to all the server-side languages as well. That is going to kind of cross-pollinate. Like people are going to start writing code for the server side that people are going to start reusing on the client side, which is already happening today. Things developed for, for client-side work move into edge computing, like Vercel is putting WebAssembly stuff into their edge nodes to make, what is that, like server-side rendering, uh, to, to like just-in-time server-side rendering. What is, what is the word for that, like the proper word? <laughs> When, when basically you hit an endpoint and the server renders the page, the static page, and like this, you mean the SSR? SSR, yeah, yeah. I mean server side rendering, but like I thought. So this, but this is not like, yeah, I guess that's server side rendering. But like that's basically you could you could do this on the client side, right? The, yeah. Like when you render your bundle, and like then they moved stuff over to the to the server side. But then you would still have to run Node.js. But if you can compile the thing to to WebAssembly, you can just deploy it to WebAssembly and just keep the things slow, keep the things faster and smaller footprint. One of the things that you know, one of the things about JavaScript, the the way that JavaScript works differently than than most other programming languages that most people use these days, is that JavaScript is is a just in time compiler instead of an ahead of time compiler, which is what all the languages that compile to WebAssembly are. You take the C++ code dur- during the build process and generate WebAssembly, whereas with JavaScript, you write JavaScript and you deploy JavaScript. You, you, you might minify it or, or you might re- uh, uh, remove all the type information when you transform it from TypeScript into JavaScript. But, but effectively, it's still the same. It's essentially the same JavaScript code. And with JavaScript, because this compilation step needs to happen at runtime, it needs to be really, really fast, which means that it's hardly optimized. You, you, because you don't want to wait while the compiler is trying to, starting to optimize the code. Instead, what usually happens with you know, V8 and, and similar systems is they identify hot code during runtime and then optimize that over time. So your JavaScript code, while it runs, actually gets faster and more optimized over time. Problem with that is if you're looking at microservices and stuff like that, they usually don't run long enough for anything to get optimized. You know, you you call that backend service, it does whatever computation it does, returns the results, and it's done. And it's usually supposed to happen within, I don't know, a couple of microseconds. So, so there's no time for optimizing the code. So you're you're always running JavaScript in its most inefficient form. And that's where something like WebAssembly can really shine because, again, you're compiling it ahead of time. So you're getting the advantages of JavaScript, which is that it runs in a secure environment, that it can run everywhere, uh, that it's it's wholly portable, portable and, and you can send you know the code over the wire very easily. But it's optimized from the get-go you never are stuck with running inefficient and unoptimized code. So those are the benefits I see. 
I do have actually a question for you that I keep wanting to ask about uh, WebAssembly running inside the browser. Does it run on the main thread or does it, when you deploy WebAssembly to the browser, or does it run in a separate thread like a worker? Very good question. And I will have to, <laughs> it is almost as if we conspired because what you just said is really just giving me the perfect segue in, into something that I, this is the J- JavaScript Jabbers podcast. So I wanted to talk about JavaScript in WebAssembly, <laughs> uh, which is, it kind of sounds like a kind of blasphemy, but there is a method to the madness and you just explained why. Uh, but to answer your question, yeah, absolutely. WebAssembly runs in the same thread that you're invoking it from. Hmm. Uh, this is important because when you're calling into WebAssembly, so basically when you compile, there is a subtle difference here that is important to mention that when WebAssembly is compiled from a source language, such as Rust, into the WebAssembly bytecode, that generates bytecode, a WebAssembly bytecode. But inside whatever runtime you're using, be that V8 or time or whatever runtime that you're using, it still needs to compile in the same way that JVM needs to compile to the target architecture that your actual computer is running on. It still needs to translate the WebAssembly code, the byte code, into the native like system code. So that compilation is you you can do initial optimizations in the Rust code and compiling to WebAssembly, but certain optimizations can only be done when you're doing this byte code to machine code translation. And what I mentioned is WebAssembly code has to do this compilation as well. And a lot of this compilation happens as WebAssembly streams in. A lot of WebAssembly runtimes actually have multiple different compilers to do this. And again, they are tiered in the same way is that the quickest compilers compile to machine code. As your code comes in, as your bytecode comes in, the fastest compiler compiles it to with very basic optimizations and the later individual functions of WebAssembly. And again, like WebAssembly was explicitly built with this in mind. Like everything in WebAssembly is built to be able to be compiled as it streams in, able to be recompiled. There's a lot of very good blog posts about both how V8 does, does this tiered compilation, how the browsers do this basically. But at the end of the day, you still need to compile. Something interesting about WebAssembly on the server side in this case is the runtime of your choice can do this and cache the compiled native code. So if you're, like you said, running something, be that you know JavaScript or even, even WebAssembly in this case, there is a way to cache that compiled or parsed and compiled code, both in JavaScript, I think they call them V8 snapshots or something like that, and in WebAssembly, there are multiple tools that basically just cache this compiled version, uh, the, the native version of, of WebAssembly inside the memory of the of the executing of the executing runtime. The interesting thing about this is is what you mentioned earlier is that you know JavaScript is JavaScript is a just-in-time compiled language, and that is mostly true today, but does not have been true always. And JavaScript at the very core doesn't have to be just-in-time compiled. JavaScript at the very core can be interpreted. And this, I've been giving a lot of talks in a couple of years ago about embedded JavaScript runtimes. There are a bunch of them, JavaScript or Esprino, and like there is a bunch of different tiny, tiny 
uh, embedded system compatible JavaScript runtimes. Like you couldn't fit V8 on like a microcontroller, or Raspberry Pi Pico, or like uh, something like that. So they exist that all these like JavaScript implementations that were interpreting JavaScript from source to the point where you could put more spaces in your source code. And then when you uploaded it onto the, the embedded device, because these are like, you know, 16 megahertz devices, and it's reading those spaces, like you could actually slow your JavaScript down by putting a long string in there. It was, it was pretty, it was pretty, uh, like, to, with, with like Node.js and like just-in-time compilation existing, people really didn't think that was a thing. But like, you could interpret JavaScript and you could, you can interpret WebAssembly bytecode in the same way that Java bytecode you can you can interpret and not have to compile it to the native source. Of course, you're losing performance there. But the question is there, like there is there comes a point, and this is why I keep telling people about how WebAssembly, if it was just fast enough, or if it was just secure, or if it was just, I don't know, portable, it wouldn't have made such a impact. It wouldn't have been exciting people as it as it seems to be exciting people a lot. What really comes at this point is all these properties kind of interact in a way that make it just fast enough and secure and you know low footprint that all of these kind of make it like an an idea or like the best that we have, like from a technology that provides all of these properties and makes all these things possible. You know, it is it is secure enough. It is fast enough. And, you know, it's not as fast as native code. So if speed is your number one thing, you could compile a piece of Rust code, optimize the heck out of it, and then deploy it to some bare metal machine and, like, crank up the, the threads. And, you know, you, you can do it. Like And, like, you know, it would be memory safe because Rust is a language that allows you to do that. But you have to write it in Rust. In WebAssembly, you could theoretically write it in any language or, you know... Uh, in WebAssembly, you get, you know, these other properties. Like, you could put it on any device, any, you know, you decide to switch to ARM services. Like, as long as you find a runtime that runs in ARM services, it will just work. All of that stuff, like, brings together properties that you can make a good trade-off instead of just focusing on one or the other of these properties. So you're, you're kind of talking about some of the reasons why it's attractive. I guess the question that I have, and I, you know, I talk to CTOs and people who are starting new companies or people who are trying to add some aspect of what they're doing. So when is the right time for them to start looking at WebAssembly and some of the technologies we're talking about here and saying, oh, this is something I should at least be considering for this project? Right, as opposed to I'm gonna go play with this new Wizbang thing and hope that I figure out why I want it. Yeah, so a lot of the things that we see related to edge computing or server side Java uh, WebAssembly in, in ways. So a lot of the things that I can see that are up and coming and, and are like you know if you keep your eyes out, like you can catch a train that is that is uh, on the rising edge. Docker, like there was a conference called WebAssembly in North America days, something like that, a couple of weeks ago. Two very important things from those that conference got announced. One was the opening keynote by Luke Wagner, who talked about, and finally, Luke Wagner talked about WebAssembly interface types. And this was the thing that I was looking for, by the way. It just popped into my brain like five minutes ago. Luke Wagner talked about WebAssembly interface types and the WebAssembly component model. 
both of these are basically the light at the end of the tunnel for how do I interact with the outside world and across modules better in WebAssembly. And the second, I believe, that is not as interesting technology-wise. It's not as groundbreaking, but that was the conference where Docker announced that you can now run native WebAssembly workloads in Docker. So you can still run containers. You can still have your containers in Docker. What you can now do natively in Docker is use WebAssembly modules as their own, basically, payloads in Docker. And I think there's a very interesting thing. Uh, people keep bringing back, uh, bringing up this like tweet from Solomon Hikes about how you wouldn't have to invent Docker if WebAssembly existed. That's like kind of like an in-joke for all of WebAssembly things you, you have to mention or, <laughs> or bring this tweet in. But like people, like, people really like to exaggerate. And they're like, oh, yeah, WebAssembly is going to kill JavaScript. And WebAssembly is going to kill Docker. And like WebAssembly is going to kill all technology. There's a really interesting parallel when people say, well, containers didn't kill virtual machines, right? Containers found a way to run some workloads in you know, more energy efficient ways or more resource efficient ways or you know, just found new ways to run workloads that previously you had to run in a virtual machine. You wanted isolation, you wanted to run you know, easy scaling of a process, you had to put it into, into a virtual machine. There was no other way. And people, and then, you know, they invented containers. And what happened is some of that work, some of those payloads migrated into containers that made more sense for them. And this is exactly the WebAssembly path. Like, uh, WebAssembly is not going to, you know, displace containers and VMs and all the other virtualization technologies, but some workloads are going to make a lot more sense for WebAssembly than they make even for containers. Fastly, Cloudflare, there's a bunch of companies uh, that talk about basically how running many, many, many WebAssembly modules in the same server, very packedly, di uh, uh, very densely packed into very small resources, being able to spin those WebAssembly modules up and dispose of them right after. Like, this is exactly what Dan mentioned earlier, is what WebAssembly is really good at. Like, you can spin up WebAssembly modules in microseconds. Like, there's orders of magnitude of difference between how fast, like, you can run a WebAssembly module versus how fast you can spin up a Cloudflare worker that's in JavaScript like a V8 isolate. There's orders of magnitudes of difference. And so when you have that orders of magnitudes of difference, it gives you basically superpowers. Like you don't have to you know, keep modules in memory to, for caching, right? You can just spin them up as the request comes in. And Cloudflare has been doing a lot of these optimizations for JavaScript, right? When your request hits their edge network, they already start compiling the, the JavaScript or whatever. Like they, they do all kinds of optimizations to reduce request latency. And WebAssembly just gives you an order of magnitude improvement for free. But like you don't want to use this for, you know, I don't know, like uh, the trivial workloads, right? Like you want to use this for something that really needs this latency advantage, you know, needs this speed advantage, like something that, that puts WebAssembly at an advantage versus all the existing technologies is that all your DevOps people and all your developers are already familiar with. So there's a switching cost, right? Like there's a, a cost to 
when this tech, like adopting this technology makes sense. And a lot of these talks, including the prime talk that I was mentioning, talks about a lot of these switching costs. It's like, when does like adopting a new technology, be it Rust or be it WebAssembly, make sense? And and like it is, you know, it has to be individually, you know, selected like by the workload and by the whatever that you want. And like, can you even find people who understand WebAssembly is a big problem and it has been a big problem. It's it's slightly, you know, like getting better, but like it's it's a huge problem. It's like, how do you even get people who get WebAssembly who who, who don't get, you know, you have to compile things. You do have to know a bunch of if you want to create WebAssembly, not just use it. But then you will have to understand the specification. You'll have to understand how compiler work, uh, compilers work, like kind of the things that I mentioned, like briefly. And like, what are these tiering? Like, what are these like performance latency issues that 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 crop up? And so, you know, that's not trivial to to find people, or not trivial to to make that happen. But it is it is happening. And so, like I said, like the Docker thing is really like a very good example of like gaining mainstream traction is 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 increasingly happening. The component model talk that I also mentioned is also a very good way to basically everything that we talked about, how oh it's hard to share objects and to have interfaces. You have to do everything manually and rely on tools that like may or may not do what you need. Like all of that stuff is going away and giving you a web ideal-ish interface. This is the interface types specification that will make this almost trivial to interact, to, to let modules between interact between each other. And at that point, you are, you are not compiling a monolith. You're not just sourcing all these Rust libraries and creating your WebAssembly code from all these Rust libraries. But you can just pick up somebody's, there is a company called Fermion who, do, who, who does a lot of like edge computing and like he's really batting on, on this technology. They have a web server written in Grain, a programming language one of my colleagues is working on. Like Grain is a programming language explicitly like targets that's uh, it explicitly targets WebAssembly. They started writing, they started creating a programming language that explicitly compiles to WebAssembly. And so those people at, at, at Fermion picked up this language. They were like, this is a cool language. We're going to write a web server in it. And they can expose that web server as its own component. And you just pull it in and basically rely on that component to do your web servering needs from inside your own WebAssembly module is what basically this component model future allows us, which is like orders of magnitudes of improvements in everything. Imagine having a WebAssembly having WebAssembly code that needs to rely on some shared library. You're Cloudflare, you're like an edge computing uh, company. And for example, what, what, what could be a good example is imagine that you're uh, one of these image resizing, whatever, like image webification uh, providers. So what you would want to do, and but you want to do it in WebAssembly. So now what you, what you need to do is like whenever somebody wants a WebAssembly module that resizes their images to... 1080p, and if some other person, like for example, wants like their own WebAssembly module that resizes things to 720p, and also like outputs in PNG, like those two modules would individually have to be compiled and deployed, and those modules will in, in, uh, include a giant library that is an image manipulation library, probably compiled from Rust or C++, and is going to make that WebAssembly code like six megabytes. 
So imagine that you provide all of these customers of yours, you know, the ability of customize and WebAssembly and Edge, and it's going to be fast. You'll have to deal with all these people deploying six megabyte WebAssembly bundles into your Edge infrastructure. In the future, uh, this is the WebAssembly component model thing. Like You can just ship the image manipulation library as a separate WebAssembly module that is basically going to tie together on, on your servers. And so you only need one five megabyte uh, image manipulation library, and all your clients will deploy one megabyte web, web assembly bundles. So every single time you're saying five megabytes on uh, every single one of those, you don't have to load it, you don't have to compile it, you can just keep it pre-compiled into machine code. Like this is all the reason, like basically why I made that the kind of microservices my comparison is like the, the gains can be like similar of like breaking up a monolith into your microservices. All those things just fall out of it automatically. So these are two things that are really marking that WebAssembly is growing up. And there has been a lot of interest, like growing interest around using some of these like new features and like prospects to, to kind of really push WebAssembly forward. All right. Well, we're kind of at the end of our scheduled time, and I want to make sure that we're respectful of yours. What are kind of the, I guess, one or two big takeaways that people should get from this episode? Yeah, probably one of the one of the things I keep telling to people, like you don't have to know what WebAssembly is, or one don't want, don't have to care about it. You already benefit from it, and and you can use a lot of the WebAssembly modules. Actually, are packaged up in really nifty you know, MPM libraries or whatever that you could just use without even knowing that internally it uses WebAssembly. So a lot of that is probably just like, if, you have never, if you're worried about whether that is going to take away uh, your worth or like whatever as a developer, it's fine to not know about WebAssembly. It's fine not to like jump on <laughs> the, the latest new hype. You have already like 17 new front-end frameworks to, uh, to watch out for every day anyway. Mm-hmm. So, so that's probably a big one. If I can throw in one, we're seeing already a lot of JavaScript tooling effectively moving away from JavaScript uh, in order to make build processes, for example, a lot faster. Again, going up to the expensive startup time that's associated with JavaScript-based implementations. And so we're seeing JavaScript tools being written in Go or in Rust. Now, if they're written in Rust, they can already be compiled and deployed as WebAssembly. And if they're written in Go, well, they can't, but hopefully soon they can be. So I think we will see more and more of the JavaScript toolchain actually being implemented and using WebAssembly. Yeah, there's also the flip side of that. Like a lot of people are worried about WebAssembly taking over or whatever. And if they miss the boat, then they, they will not know how to develop. And I think WebAssembly on the flip side is opening up a huge swath of possibilities for many languages and many programming languages outside of what the usual place that you would use them. One of the good examples to this is Python. So one of the reasons Python was not really usable in the browser was because you had to use like CPython and CPython had all kinds of issues. But like Python proper, you can't compile because the garbage collection, all this stuff, and slowly all those like hurdles are being moved and moved away. And Python is now having a experimental browser version that is like 300 kilobytes. Like you could you could embed a Python interpreter in using WebAssembly in a browser in like 300 kilobytes. This is like fairly recent new like news, probably like one or two weeks. And this is I think like a huge boon for like the entire web, the entire ecosystem of like people are gonna have this ability 
of user-resistance skills in places that they've never imagined to. And this is going to open up like a lot of possibilities in spaces where this was not possible before. Cool. All right. Just well, once you can doesn't mean you should. <laughs> <laughs> so just for one moment, like I, I kind of teased this, so I kind of want to get this out. So we, we run JavaScript in, in WebAssembly. We compile JavaScript to WebAssembly. We are not the first ones. Figma, who you mentioned, also does this. What Figma d- does this for is like they use WebAssembly for isolation for their plugin systems. We use it for a very different, so that's in browser. We use it on the, on this, on the server side. And the reason we do it consistently, when you give people like, here, you can write your own code. And like people are like, okay, but like, what languages can I use? I was like, well, WebAssembly supports a bunch of languages. You can use Rust and Go and, and Swift. And, and, and people are like, can I use JavaScript? And you're like, no. And like everybody was asking for JavaScript because it's a language they're familiar with and like everybody mm-hmm. wanted JavaScript. So we took uh, basically QuickJS, uh, like a C JavaScript implementation and just compiled it to WebAssembly and put it into into the into the server, like put it into our edge services. And so now you can use a full, you know, it's ECMAScript 6 compliant, you know, all the bells and whistles. And and it kind of goes back to what Dan was saying earlier. It's like you don't need incredible performance to handle, you know, an incoming webhook and uh, post something into a Slack channel, right? Like that's not a performance bound subject. That's not a performance bound issue. But like being able to do this in pipelines of JavaScript versus having to learn Rust if you want to do it, it makes all the difference. And so like people kind of think, you know, like when you look at it, like you put JavaScript, like a runtime into WebAssembly, like you compiled an entire JavaScript runtime into WebAssembly. Why would you do that? You really shouldn't do that. And like there, there are legitimate reasons to do the, this sort of thing because it's good UX and it makes it possible for people to, to use our product. So, and people have been like, uh, people have been using our services like constant, constantly and consistently has been asking for it. So, but you're saying you we or us, do you mean your company? You know. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I, I never really insured ourselves. Like I work at a, a company called Suburbable. We we live and breathe this whole like we are super hyped about WebAssembly. Yeah, the product that we work on is extensibly using WebAssembly. How like easiest to describe it is probably imagine that you could embed a code editor into a product, like as as the, you work on some product, and you can embed a code editor inside that is that people can write some JavaScript or Rust or whatever into it and create some custom code that will run inside your infrastructure. So what we do is like we will compile this to WebAssembly and you can either run it inside your infrastructure or like we'll run it for you in like distributed ways. But at the end of the day, basically we take care of people customizing your product with code, like with uh, as much flexibility as a programming language can give them. And the only reason we can do this is because WebAssembly provides all these like source languages and all of that stuff. And so that has been basically it. We're like, oh yeah, you can do this in Rust and assembly script. And people are like, but like, what if I want to write JavaScript code? And then we figured out how to to, to let, them, let them do that in JavaScript. Cool. Wish we could dig into that some more, but... Uh... <laughs> Maybe we'll have you back and we'll f- figure out how that all works. When um, edge computing all blows up, you'll just, and WebAssembly is like, you can just like, walk you, come, come back. I'm, I, I have to say, I have to say, you know, just because you mentioned it, and I won't go into it too deeply because, as Chuck said, we're kind of out of time, but I'm still w- waiting for the killer app for edge computing. I mean, it's cool and whatnot, mm. and there are certainly 
useful scenarios, but but I've yet to encounter the scenario with, with to which I would say, yeah, that's the killer app. Everybody is going to need that. Everybody is going to need edge computing. And yeah, maybe I'm just missing it, but that's where I am currently. Yeah, I think microservices kind of tells the story that you just like you have different trade-offs that you still have to figure out how to make that work. Right. If you have one server, yeah. you can have like one database, like you can have edge computing, right? Like if your data is still in the other part of the world, it's still. Yeah, it's like you just still have to figure out uh, different trade-offs. Yeah, I think what Dan put it really well, I mean, yeah, that's what I'm looking for is the thing that a good portion of the web apps out there are going to want or need to at some point adapt to that this kind of technology just knocks out of the park. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I haven't seen it yet either, but... It's interesting because we kind of see some of these things kind of hit a hype cycle. And then once it kind of stabilizes, a lot of times that's where we find it. So anyway, let's go ahead and do picks. Have you ever wished that you had a group of people that were just as passionate about writing code as you are? I know I did. I did that for most of my career. I'd go to the meetups. I'd try and create other opportunities. And it was just really hard, right? The meetups, I got some of that, but they were only like once or twice a month. And it was just really hard to find that group of people that I connected with and and really wanted to, you know, talk about code a lot, right? I mean, I love writing code. I think it's the best. And so I've decided to create this community and create it a, a worldwide community that we can all jump in and do it. So we're going to have two workshops every week. One of those or two of those every month are going to be Q&A calls, right, where you can get on, you can ask me or me and another expert questions. Uh, The rest of them are going to be focused on different aspects of career or programming or things like that, right? So it'll go anywhere from like deployments and containers all the way up to managing your 401k and negotiating your benefits package. Well, we'll cover all of it, okay? And then we're also going to have meetups every month for your particular technology area. So we have shows about JavaScript, React, Angular, Vue, and so on. We're going to have meetups for all of those things. I'm going to revive the freelancer show. We'll have one about that, right? So you can get started freelancing or continue freelancing if that's where you're at. And I'm working on finding authors who can actually do weekly video tutorials on something for 10 minutes that's related, to, again, to those technology areas so that you can stay current and keep growing. So if you're interested, go to topendevs.com slash sign up and you can get in right now for $39. When we're done, that price is going to go up to $75. And the $39 price gets you access to two calls per week. The The full price at $150, which is going to be $75 over the next few weeks, that price is going to get you access to all of the calls and all of the tutorials and everything else that we put out from Top End Devs along with member pricing for our remote conferences that are coming up next year. So go check it out, topendevs.com slash sign up. Dan, do you want to start us off with our sure picks? Sure thing. So I've got two picks today, both of them technical. First, Well, kind of technical. The first one, you know, uh, what with everything happening in Twitter land with Elon Musk being kind of a bull in a china shop, and definitely shaking things up. We're seeing a lot of people moving to Mastodon and finding out that it's a really challenging move, that while that environment has a lot of advantages, one of them, I guess, being no Elon Musk, it also has a lot of disadvantages, certainly with everything, anything having to do with user experience. And I have found something which is a really useful utility to work with it. So currently, I've got an account 
both in Twitter and in Mastodon, and I'm effectively in both. And I don't want to tweet and toot or whatever they call it, everything twice. So there's this cool tool called MOA, M-O-A, and their URL is moa.party. And it basically syncs between Twitter and Mastodon. So anything that you tweet can be automatically posted into Mastodon and vice versa. Currently, I've configured it so that all my tweets also make their way into Mastodon, but not the other way around. It's not perfect, but it mostly works and actually works surprisingly well. So if you're currently in that stage where you're kind of straddling both systems, I, I highly recommend it. So that would be my first pick. And my second pick has to do with podcasting. I've recently encountered an interesting app called Snipped. It's S-N-I-P-D. And what it does, it's, an, it's a, a podcast player. So you can use it instead of uh, the Apple podcast player or the Google podcast play, uh, application. But what's cool about it is that it uses AI to actually analyze the audio stream. And first of all, it, it, it creates a transcription. So even if the podcast does not have a transcription, it creates one for you. But it goes beyond that. It actually breaks down that podcast episode into uh, snippets and chapters that you can jump to directly or save. So for example, let's say you know somebody says something really insightful in a podcast it would actually find it, kind of wrap it in a snippet that you can then save and send to others or maybe keep for posterity or whatever. It's it's a really interesting tool. I'm, I'm still playing around with it. I've not yet started using it exclusively as my uh, uh, podcasting app, but looks to be really interesting. So that would be my second pick. And my third pick is that pick that I keep on picking. I'll keep it short this time. Ongoing war in Ukraine, still ongoing still a lot of suffering, anything that our listeners can do to help, I encourage them to do so. And those would be my picks for today. Awesome. All right, AJ, what are your picks? I'm going to have to pick Twitter because now that it's under new management, they're getting rid of the child prawn and uh, un unbanning accounts that were banned for no reason. And I can't pick Mastodon because they still allow child prawn but don't allow you to have opinions. <laughs> well, well. to be fair with Mastodon, it really depends what server you're on because basically yeah. the server's administrator can what to have or not to have on their server. The weird thing about it being the fact that you even have to pick a server. Like you, you say, okay, I don't know. I'm worried about Twitter going away. I'm going to start using this Mastodon thing. I want to create an account. First question you get asked is, which server do you want to use? What the heck is a server? What does it matter? And then you get... Well, this is this is the email question, right? Are you going to use Gmail? No, but it's, it's, it's actually not exactly the same. I, I got, no, I, I got that not. explanation as well, that it's really like an email server and like your email address, but then you find out that it's actually not the same because you see, because the level of exposure that you get to content that's on your server or not, or not on your server is vastly different. And if you want to follow people who are not on your server, it's much more challenging. You know, it's it's not the same, you know, because you can send emails to any email address, no problem. And it's not exactly the same with Mastodon servers. That's, you know, at least 
from what I'm saying. But anyway. So I want to do is Mastodon self-hosting Mastodon. Oh, my. And like, yes, yeah, sh- sure, you can say, you know, like, oh, nobody can ban me from my own server is one thing. But honestly, like 99 They can't. They, they, they can. It's in their, it's in their thing that your server <laughs> oh, must be banned unless you agree with all of their political nonsense. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, yeah. You can ban me from your server, but like not from my own. But like what I was getting at is like 99% of the reason I can choose and pick my own emojis. Like Twitter can't let you do that. I have all my emojis that I ever wanted. Like it's like Discord, but well, for. By the way, I have to say that my issue, yeah. one of my issues with Twitter, pulling, putting aside all the political nonsense and shenanigans, and and I won't go even go into that. I have two main points here with Twitter. One was that Twitter was going down the, the drain or down the tubes before my, um, Elon Musk purchased it. It was just doing it much, much more slowly, but it was still a failing company. So I don't know if Elon Musk will, will be able to save it. It's doubtful in my mind. He seems to be doing a lot of damage while while he's trying to do anything else. But it was failing before he even got there. So that's one point. And the other point is that we, you know, looking at all the damage that he is or isn't creating, we're forgetting how much we were complaining about Twitter before he joined. And again, not about the political aspect. I'm talking about the technical stuff, like the fact that you couldn't choose emojis, like the the fact that you couldn't edit direct messages, like the fact you know that you would be reading a tweet and then it would disappear and you would have no way to ever find it again. You know, stuff like that, which has been around for years and we've been complaining about it. And all of a sudden, all of us are so romantic and nostalgic about how the, how Twitter used to be. Monopoly is always bad. I don't think like a lot of people, oh, is Twitter dying? Like big companies don't die except if they are crypto exchanges. It's basically that, you know, it gave a big boost to Mastodon and like a monopoly is always bad, but like just by having that boost, Mastodon might be able to... By the to way, did you like see that the Mastodon is potentially going under because of this boost? Because all their financing is coming from Patreon and they're literally running out of money? But like, you know, Mastodon.social, like that server might run out of money, but like there's a thousands of thousands of servers. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's open source. Thousands? Yeah. Yeah. There's thousands of servers. Uh, yeah, there there's thousands of users. Oh no, no, no! There is seven. There are thousands million, of use of servers. Seven million users. Two million active users. Monthly active users of Mastodon. That's uh, eight million. Bots. By the time this goes in, like yeah, you know, like could be a couple million. Like it's a well, huge boost. Well, my thing is, and I was gonna, I was gonna do a Mastodon pick too, so I may as well just chime in, <laughs> because, because honestly, uh, this week I was planning on setting up a Mastodon server, and I've been thinking about it for a while. And what tipped me over the edge was all the people saying I'm considering moving to Mastodon. Now, a lot of those people are politically motivated, and I really don't want to wait into that. I'm willing to wait and see what Elon Musk does, see where Twitter ends up, and if it winds up too painful to use, then I'll move. And if if not, then I'll probably be posting there and posting to Mastodon. But the thing hey, I like Uncle, about Mastodon... Uncle Bob got unbanned. <laughs> oh, I didn't know he got banned. He um, was shadow banned. <laughs> he retweeted me today. Anyway, oh, cool. about the book club, because we're doing his book first. But anyway, the thing that I'm seeing is that 
on a lot of these servers, you you get groups of people that have something in common, right? So, you know, I saw Dan, I think on your profile, you had like webperf.social or something, right? And I want to put up a topendevs.social, right? Ruby's had one for a while at ruby.social. It's not official. But here's official. the thing that I don't get. Routine, I'll interrupt but, you for a second. But, I'm on web uh, webperf.social because, you know, I'm interested in web performance and, you know, some people, they right. invited me, kind of invited me over. So I said, hey, cool, I'll go there. But then let's say you also, like you said, create a top end, uh, top end devs, uh, social server. Do I create an account there as well? Do I now have two accounts? What does that even mean? I don't know. <laughs> I think a that's lot, a conversation a worth just, having. Yeah. But your account will federate to mine as long as I allow it. And so yeah, I don't yeah. I don't see that you necessarily unless unless there's a server that's just putting out hundred percent garbage, you know, or child porn as AJ's pointed out is out there, right? Then you might wind up saying that this can't federate to my server. But for the rest of it, you know, I I can see that if they're on top end devs.social, then that means that they, you know, are fans of the community or want to be part of the community. That doesn't mean that if you have some other Mastodon account that you don't, but it gives people who identify with our community an opportunity to be a part of Sorry, our I, I just social don't network. Get that. And I, I can just don't get it. I, I mean, how can I be a part so of like a, a on this server if you want to be a part of a community, but oh wait, you can be a part of our community without being on our server. <laughs> So why do I need the server? I don't get yeah. it. I don't get it. I, I think I think there is there's uh, the local timeline and the federated timeline that are two key pieces to this basically that you mm-hmm. have to look a bit more into. Like uh, if you come from Twitter, especially, it's kind of a switch. You kind of have to switch over. You don't really discover these. Like a lot of them are hidden, like in the default new interface. So I kind of have to look for them. But this local timeline, which basically shows everybody's posts who are on your current server, is really nice because if you're a Vipper social, you can see everybody's Vipper like related discussions or whatever without even having to follow them, right? That's kind of the fire hose, which would have made sense for the entire Twitter, right? Like that doesn't make sense. But like for your local instance, it might be inside. So all of a sudden, we're starting follow, to appreciate the Twitter mm-hmm. algorithm, basically, is what you're saying, even though we've been <laughs> maligning it for years. Maybe. I mean, you self-selected into Vepper Social, so you 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 did the job for the algorithm, right? You ended up in a place that yeah. you care about. But, but I care about multiple like things. Other, but that's the thing: stuff. I care about multiple yes. things. Yeah, but they they don't have to be exclusive. Well, they don't have to be exclusive. Yeah, you can follow people but I, from I, other I'm servers. Sure, but I I, yeah. I can follow people on other servers, but I can't follow other servers. It mm-hmm. it's really weird. This is a complaint, and there is a bug about this. <laughs> mm-hmm. To do this, hashtag yeah. somewhat, somewhat alleviate this, but like, yeah, that's a whole another. It's you know, it's like baby steps. Like people are still getting acclimated, but like yeah. I think Mastodon has a bunch of concepts that you don't really get until you actually spend some time on yeah, it. But then I ask myself, do I really want to to spend the time getting those concepts? I'm not sure. Well, Mr. Musk has been a really good catalyst to make more people. And, and by the way, I have yeah. to disagree with you, us. Chuck. I do think, or, or was it you, Flucky? I don't remember who said it. I do think that Musk can easily run Twitter into the ground, not intentionally, but if he, oh, he, but may. he definitely may. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you know, you don't, again, I, I apologize for kind of hijacking this episode and this discussion here, but what people don't get 
hey, people are talking about it, so it's what, fine. What people don't <laughs> yeah. get about software developers is if you... I gave this analogy to one of the HR people in our company today over lunch. They, she, she was like wondering how Twitter can run after laying off so many people. And I was saying it potentially can run better it kind of depends on who you laid off it because if the mm -hmm. in, whole intent is to just keep the current Twitter going without adding any new capabilities, you can do that with a skeleton crew much more effectively because the ongoing development that you see in a lot of software as a service companies is like people call it's like engineers keep working on a running on a driving car and obviously you can have a car running much more efficiently if you don't work on it while it's going but that effectively that means that you won't ever get any new features and capabilities so if you're good with what twitter has and you don't want to add anything in terms of capabilities and features and whatnot you could probably do it with the right skeleton crew forever but I doubt that that's what but Elon Musk is trying to do. That technologically it might not be changing, but like the vibe on Twitter is changing. And like this, Mastodon is... Oh yeah, but that's a totally that. different it's discussion. Like, wow. That's a totally uh, different discussion. Yeah, like you might still not want to stay there, even if like technically it will still run. But like by you not staying there, it is oh, still Oh, for sure. And I totally and respect yeah, that. that. If somebody so, says... I, yeah. I don't like Twitter anymore. I don't like Elon Musk. It's funny, by the way, to see his fall from grace from being this uh, Tesla hero <laughs> to the Twitter villain. But right. but I'm totally fine with it. You know, it's a, it's a social network. If you're feeling that this is not the social environment that you want to be in, you know, it's totally legitimate to go away. I'm not talking about that aspect at all. I'm talking just about the technological aspect. But a lot of people are saying that, you know, he's paying 4D chess and 5D chess because like, you know, like there is, there's a method to his madness and stuff like that. But like, even he can basically like anticipate like kind of the chaos, like, you know, butterfly winds flapping effect of like this kind of networking effect of like people really disliking the conversation, deciding to leave managing to find a booming conversation on Mastodon, like whatever. And like, we were like, oh, I don't have to go back. Like kind of that sort of thing that you can't anticipate because like this layer thing that, that just keeps yeah. like feeding back into it. Like even if- Yeah, but the playing, biggest like, thing is, chat, like, the biggest can't... issue is that on Twitter, I had an audience of, I don't know, several thousand people that I was interacting with. And there's no way for me to take mm -hmm. that circle of people and bring them over to Mastodon. True. True. Yep, true. Yep. No, but that's no, true no. of any social network, no matter how much is in parallel between the two. Yep. I and mean, people have yeah. to find you again. Yeah, no, it is it is kind of bootstrapping or rebooting. So, so yeah. that definitely does not work. Yep. But anyway, uh, at the end of the day, yeah, I mean, if you want to come join us, topendevs.social, I'm going to have it up probably right after Thanksgiving. This will go out later than that, so it shouldn't be a problem. I did get the book club stuff up. First call is December 7th, so I'm going to throw that in as a pick. AJ, did you have other picks? Because like, we kind of yeah. derailed. Yeah. All right, yeah. AJ. So I'm going to, this isn't really a pick as much as an update, I guess. So I finished The Big Short. I thought that, that was excellent and scary, the audiobook. And then I went on to Snow Crash. And Snow Crash is kind of weird. It's like somebody handed a manuscript, a first draft manuscript that was just the F word 10,000 times and handed it to Dan Brown and told him to write Ready Player One, popped him up on drugs 
He dies of an overdose three quarters of the way through, and then Agatha, Agatha Christie takes over, but finishes with Ready Player Two instead. So overall, Ready would not Player recommend Snow Crash. Huh? <laughs> I said Ready Player Two was awful. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it about the three-quarter mark, I don't know, I think there was two or three hours left of the book. And then this dude who's kind of, kind of, you know, he's kind of grungy and he's got swords and he's a pizza delivery guy, all of a sudden becomes an eloquent scholar and explains all of the pieces of information that you may or may not have picked up through the entire book and takes a whole huge chapter to explain everything just in case you were dumb and weren't actually reading the book and at that point from there forward i just i just had no interest anymore plus the it like i said agatha christie you know if you if you are familiar with oh gosh what what is it the train the train the train orient express murder Murder on on the orient Express. express yeah if you're familiar with murder on the orient express when when you get to the point where everything's being unraveled it's just not very satisfying and that and that's kind of how i felt about snow crash is when when they it just it you have to with science fiction you have to pick your rules and you got to pick them pretty early on and then you have to kind of stick to the rules of that universe you know like in star wars you can have faster than light communication but you can't you can't the last last jedi it and then just break all of the rules I'm laughing because that was, yeah, that was, anyway, I complained about that. <laughs> okay, so Snow Crash, Big Short. Also, there's a YouTube channel called Cold Fusion that I, I listened to some stuff about the Big Short and the FTX, and apparently there's a new form of obligation bond that's extremely similar to what caused the, the housing crash of 2008, the, the Big Short stuff, that apparently has been reinvented, so we may be headed for you know, two simultaneous collapses of this new type of bond that they're using to do exactly what they did in 2008. Well, I guess it was 2002 leading up to 2008 when it crashed or so. And then, but good news, I'm going to pick my, the company that I, that I worked for, Savvy, Savvy Legal. I, if you are a startup founder and you hate doing the paperwork bits, but you're at a point where you actually have to do them because you're getting investment or you're having some sort of business life cycle event where you you must do the paperworky stuff. Savvy, the, what we do is we make that easier. So if you don't want to do it, you know, you still have to get from zero to one. You still have to actually get your ducks in a row and get some of your documents together. But Savvy makes it a lot easier to get the right documents, know which documents are the right documents, and then share them with the right people in the right way so that your due diligence processes and stuff like that can go through all right. And then I'm also going to pick the Dash cryptocurrency. It makes me sad, all these scam cryptocurrencies. I I guess that's, you know, all of them except Dash as far as I know. They get stupid people involved with, or really smart people, I guess, and they do scammy things and they crash the market. And I think that what Dash is trying to do is actually good. Unfortunately, because essentially the the way the Ponzi scheme of cryptocurrencies works is diversify, diversify, diversify. And I won't go into the whole how the the staking and and the interests and all this work into this. But basically, the rule is diversify, 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 because it, in short, makes it so that one cryptocurrency can prop up another so that its value raises, so that Ponzi scheme. It's Um, almost as if people aren't a problem and not cryptocurrencies. (laughs) 
Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the technology is a problem too, and Dash has problems oh, yeah. with its technology. But the community that's behind Dash, they have the a right idea, the right idea, perhaps of trying to solve the problem of making it easier to have digital payments. And so I would not recommend to anybody to invest in Dash because it's not the kind of thing you invest in. But if you're interested in using an online currency, Dash has probably got more connected pieces overall than anything else, it seems, in terms of you can go to your local coffee shop and you can spend Dash right there through there's an app called dash direct and some other stuff like that there's a lot of things that are coalescing and coming together um it'll probably all get shut down and and everything with as the the regulation comes out from the uh the ftx scandal and some of the other scandals and and the central banks of the nations take over their own digital currencies and edge out the the uh populist currencies but but uh at least for now it's it's a it's an interesting ride and um I'd, I'd encourage anybody that's interested in that to to check it out. And then, of course, if All you right. want to follow me on on um, Twitch or YouTube, Beyond Code for the focused stuff and Cool Age 86 for the ramblings and live streams. <laughs> cool. All right. I'm going to throw in my picks and then we'll uh, let Flocky go. We've, we've gone way over. But anyway, so, yeah, I, I'm putting up uh, topendevs.social. Feel free to go set up an account. I do plan on periodically purging inactive accounts. So just be aware if you get on. I just want to make room for anybody who wants it. And yeah. Anyway, uh, host? That's, that's I, I think so. I went and looked at some of the hosting options out there. And I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so that's one pick. I usually pick a board game. And I think last time I picked Betrayal at the House on the Hill. So this one, this time I'm going to pick a game called Tenpenny Parks. And I, I'm not sure if I picked this one, actually. But anyway, we taught it at the board game convention. It was a lot of fun. Takes about an hour to play. And what you're doing is you have kind of a, a plot of ground that you're building your theme park on. And you take turns. It's a worker placement game. So you put your worker out and then you do whatever the space says. You can remove trees from your space or you can buy an attraction or you can uh, set up concession stand or you can what are the other ones you can get money anyway so the the uh at the end of the game what you're trying to do is you're trying to have attracted the most they call them visiting persons which is a play on vp which in game lingo is victory points so your vps are your victory points and you do that by building the attractions and then you get money every round or other advantages every round based on what you have in your park. And it's a lot of fun. It has a board game geek weight of 2.21, which is it, it's right there in that uh, kind of casual gamer setup. There are a lot of pieces, and it takes a little bit to figure out how to play it. But the reason it's weighted low as low as it is is because the turns are really simple, right? You place your workers and do what they say, and then you get money and, you know, you get your advantages and then you take the next round, right? You do five rounds. So anyway, it's a lot of fun. It's very theme park themed. You just really, made me really, really want to play a roller coaster tycoon again. <laughs> yeah, roller coaster tycoon. Yeah, it's kind of the same idea in certain ways. So, yeah. But yeah, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. And then the other thing is, is on Sunday. So yesterday was game one of 
World Cup 2022. And I, I probably pick this every four years. So I've probably picked this two or three times during the course of this show. But I, I freaking love watching soccer. And I really love watching World Cup. It's, it's fun to watch the Women's World Cup because we've had such a terrific team for the last several years. The men's team does okay. But I don't know that I have ever gotten my hopes up that they're actually going to win the World Cup. So anyway, uh, the U.S. team. And then, yeah, I know people are wondering who else I root for. I've been disappointed that Italy hasn't been in it the last time or two, just because I lived in Italy and I, I've, I love the Azzurri. But I do, I do root for France and England and then just kind of watch to see what else happens. I, I, I have warm feelings toward Argentina and Brazil as well. So anyway, and, and, I, and I like Japan. So yeah, there you go. Those are the five, five teams besides the U.S. that I'm probably going to watch. And we'll see how it all goes. But they're in group play right now. And here's hoping. So yeah, those are my picks uh, beyond just letting folks know. We're going to start doing the calls. We're going to have a, a Q&A call and a resume review call as part of the membership on Top End Devs. Um, and then I'm bringing some people in to, to talk to us about like how to read code or how to, you know, do different things. Maybe some people to, you know, show us tri- tips and tricks on like VS Code and crap like that. So if you want to join, uh, go to topendevs.com slash sign up. The first 10, I think it was the first 10 people or 20 people. I can't remember. I think I said 20 people on the other shows. Anyway, the first 20 people get in at $39 a month and then it goes up from there, right? So then I'll raise it 10 bucks and it'll be $49 a month. I'm going to stop when we get close to $150 a month. So that that's where that membership's going to end up. But we're going to provide all kinds of valuable calls and content. There's going to be a JavaScript monthly call that's part of that. And then calls for the other shows that we have as well. So Angular, React, View, Elixir, Ruby, DevOps, Machine Learning. So if you're interested in any of those, we're basically going to have an online meetup group for people who are paying members uh, on Top End Devs. And yeah, and then the book club, obviously. And it's $17 a month. And we're starting with Uncle Bob's Clean Architecture. So those are my picks. Flocky, what are your picks? Well, I mean, we would be remiss if I didn't pick us as in superorbital.dev. Like I said earlier, you know, if you're running a company, probably startup or more into something where you need something beefy and you ever thought about, oh, gee, this would be really cool if people had like a way to write code and um, customize some parts of our application that they want to. And we could do this without having to worry about somebody, you know, breaking uh, your live infrastructure or something like that. Do check us out. We are just released our SE2 customization engine or plugin engine. Part of this are open source. A lot of this stuff is written in Go. Some of the stuff is Rust and Web Assembly, so stuff to learn as well. So that's my first pick. My second pick, I have nothing to do with it, but it's a wonderful language. Grain, G R A I N, I guess. Yeah, like you know, the programming language grain-lang.org, perhaps. Uh, we're gonna probably put it in the show notes. Our CTO. It has created this language way before he was CTO. It's inspired by a bunch of like functional languages. So if you're a functional language nerd and like want to explore how WebAssembly feels like from a perspective of a language that you know caters directly to WebAssembly, that might be a cool thing. So check that one out. And I wanted to uh, bring up something that is a big thing here. I don't know how that works uh, on the other side of the big pond, but it's definitely in Europe. Uh, that has been a thing since the start of the pandemic. A bunch of people have been uh, taking on dogs and other pets, you know, uh, 
like kind of adapting them or whatever to kind of taper them over the, the pandemic days. And like that basically is gone, like with the, a lot of the, uh, the world economy going down, all of that stuff. Basically, what we are seeing, and a lot of countries are experiencing this, is that uh, animal shelters are really struggling. A lot of people are giving back all these pets, and like not a lot of people are taking on new dogs. Part of because, like you know, being commanded back into the office from work from home, like we have heard previously for Mr. Musk, or just simply you know the economical situation changing. So please consider supporting your local shelters. You know, it's never a bad idea. And since Chuck bought a board game pick, I'm going to give a shout out for Daybreak. I don't know if you ever mentioned this, like my have previously. Uh-uh. It's from the creator of Pandemic. So, you know, that escalated quickly. But this game is actually about stopping climate change together. So, you know, if we can get it manifest itself through sheer will of people, like in a couple of years, that could only serve us right. So this is like, I think it's being crowdfunded. So I don't know if you can actually buy it or not. But it sounded real cool. I mean, like a backer on that. And so if you're into uh, board games, yeah, do check that out. Like that sounds like really cool. And yeah, that's pretty much all my picks. Uh, I'm going to say, yeah, I'm like I said, I'm a massive on self-hosting geek. I kind of given up on my Twitter account. So you will find me at, at Flocky at Flock.is, F-L-A-K.is. And F-L-A-K.is is also like where you'll find all my contacts. But like if you're into Mastodon and self-hosting or want to talk about it, chat about it, have questions, you know, I'm super happy to talk. So feel free to DM me there. Or if you're just like, really don't get what local and federated timelines are for. <laughs> so I'm super happy to talk about like Mastodon stuff or uh, that migration or self-hosting. Very cool. Yeah, I, I said I'd have it up by Thanksgiving, but I'm probably going to have it up today. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's just, just fun stuff and I, and I, yeah. I, I love the community aspect of it so um, yeah absolutely and, really cool and I really want to make it easy for people to in their social media consumption get whatever it is they need whether it's from me and my team or from the other hosts or from people that just like the shows and want to share so this is and just another I- way to do it Honestly, as long as you're not an asshole about it, there are like big servers like Mastodon, that technology and whatever, like going down, uh-huh. like that people use day to day. And it really is not another Twitter exodus, right? Like, oh shit, my server is going down. I guess I have to migrate to another server or spin up my own or something like that. And like, it really just changes the calculus. It's like, yeah, just choose, pick a server like that doesn't have literal, you know, right wing Nazis on it or something like that. And just like choose something, you know, maybe close to, to what you like. And, you know, if it doesn't work out, you can always just move on and like find another one or host your own. It really kind of takes uh, off the calculus uh, and like makes it kind of lower cost for people to experiment. So I encourage people to experiment a bit. You don't want to pick a server with left wing Nazis either. <laughs> true true yeah yeah i was because, gonna say i mean i kind of clock in on the the right side right wing side of the aisle but okay. at the end of the day right it's you find you know if if people bother you i don't have any problem with like a block feature or go somewhere where they're not going to bother you so yeah like that's yeah that's basically what i what i meant is like just find a place that that makes you not want to like yeah your hair out and if you chose wrong you can always move on yep and at the same time you know be good to other people too right so 
yeah, like like AJ saying, there are people who are hardcore, shut you down hard on both sides. And sure. so, yeah, yeah, you know, if if they aren't your people and it's driving you crazy to be there, then don't be there. That's kind of the whole point about it, really. Well, that- that's why I like the federated nature because you can yeah. choose. And then the other thing is, is that, yeah, it anybody can spin up a server. So if it if it's not your cup of tea, you can other server it. Yeah, this is totally something I, I just said like two days ago or somebody is like, we all have our bubbles, right? Like, yeah. and just Mastodon, you can kind of make them a bit more explicit than like on Twitter, right? But in Twitter, yeah. like the people you follow, the people you muted, the people you block, you still make you a bubble, right? Like make, make, yeah. make your, yourself a bubble. So it's like kind of the same idea at the end of the day. Yeah, I agree. And to be honest, I mean, I don't have a problem with people sharing their views, whether they agree with me or not. But if it turns into a giant war on the Mastodon server, yeah, I may come in and say, hey, <laughs> knock it off, right? We're, we're here to share. We're not here to attack each other. And like you're the boss, right? You can you can do yeah. it. Like, and if somebody that doesn't doesn't like that, like they can just move on. So, yeah. Right. That's that's the whole yeah. point about it. I mean, you're gonna be an a hole, and like your Mastodon server, like admin is not gonna like what you're doing. They can just yeah. like gently, you know, toss you out. Right. And if you want to be an a hole, you can go spin up your own server and be an a hole over there. <laughs> exactly. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. There's. It's. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's all bubbles, and like you can. Yeah. yeah. But here you have a choice, and here you don't have to burn all the bridges. Like, and here you know you can choose your own. Like, like it's it's yeah. kind of what people say is like people are not like people don't have to listen to you, right? Like. This mm-hmm. is not part of free speech. So if people don't want to listen to you, they can block you on Twitter and they can block you on Mastodon. It, it doesn't make a difference, really. Yeah. I think I think the thing that I want to say about this at the end of the day is that top-end devs, we're all about helping people figure out where they want to be at, figure out what fulfills them, connect those dots, and then give you all the resources you need to get there in your career, and then have that support the lifestyle you want. And so the main thrust of what I'm hoping people share on there is that stuff, right? It's, hey, I did this in my career, it really helped. I learned this thing in React, it really helped. I, you know, I listened to the Wasm episode and it really helped. I had a talk with Flocky, you know, he, he got on a call with me and he explained this to me and it made a difference, right? That's the kind of thing that I'm hoping we're sharing. And then, yeah, if you're sharing your other life stuff too, right? It's, you know, I can't believe that, you know, political blah, 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 fine. Right. But ultimately, this this is a place I want people to be able to come and say, if I'm on the top end dev social server, I know that the vast majority of the content I'm going to get there is the stuff that's going to help move me ahead and help me reach my goals and be successful where I'm going. And a lot of the time, this is like moderation just comes down to, you know, where you said that people should talk about this stuff and not that stuff. And like, Mm -hmm. where you warn people if they were talking about too much of the other stuff and like. And at the end of the day, there's always going to be somebody who will decide that they haven't been treated fairly or whatever. Yep. Like, you know, that's just moderation, like everywhere. And like, so because you inspired me, just a super late coming pick for oh, yeah. uh, for the Wasm Builders community. That is literally about just what you said. It's a forum instance for people who are building uh, WebAssembly or building on WebAssembly. So really, you just go there, um, post your blog post or whatever, you know, you just build a cool thing in WebAssembly. And it's collaboratively operated by some of the people in the WebAssembly like ecosystem, like Fermion, the folks that I mentioned, us, Orbital, and a bunch of other folks kind of came together to build exactly this, what you just mentioned. You know, come here, share your experiences, like hang yeah. out with people who build this stuff. So yeah, wasm.builders, I believe that's the website. Yeah, and that's that's the best thing about the internet, you know, no matter where or how we share stuff, is the fact that we can put our heads together and make 
awesome stuff. Cool. I'm going to throw one more. I want to throw one more thing out because I mentioned World Cup. And that is that you can watch the World Cup videos. So the live streaming, you have to have a Fox or Fox News subscription. And but if after after the fact, they are putting the replays up on Tubi for free. So it's T-U-B-I. So and that's the way I'm going to watch them because I'm freaking busy. And so I'm kind of picking the times when I go watch the matches. So if you want to watch the matches for free and you don't care if you're watching them when they play, there you go. And they do start kind of early in the morning. So anyway, just I just hope people use content warnings and don't uh, share spoilers. <laughs> yeah, that's the trick, right? Is yeah, don't tell me who won because. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, for the past two years, I've been doing a lot of digging around like video streaming technologies. And at the end uh-huh. of the day, like a lot of like the latency stuff comes down. Like it actually is like in broadcast latency. Like, you know, when when somebody is watching cable and somebody is watching satellite and like this actually came up with a word cop is that when you hear your neighbors and like the city basically like, you know, crying out like a couple seconds earlier before your broadcast arrives, you bit a goal or something that sucks. So basically 97% of the broadcast industry is trying to reduce like stream latencies and shit like that. Just so this does not happen. It's pretty fascinating stuff at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap it up here. The Mastodon talk wasn't what we were really on for, but it's something that people are on about. And I think it's worth having a discussion and just letting people know what their options are if they decide that Twitter's not a go for them or if they're looking, you know, and trying to get validation on, hey, maybe I will stick with Twitter because I'm planning on it unless something drastic changes. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how many like users Mastodon has by the time this goes. <laughs> yeah. Like how that the whole, like, this is a fast moving stuff. So by the time we arrive at that, half of this stuff is not even like, you know, half of yeah. the predictions are already resolved and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. There's like a whole, there's like a whole thread somebody put together like 30 different ways this could go down. Like, that's like pretty fascinating. There's like, yeah. Including like it goes to shit or like, you know, goes all the way up. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Anyway, this was fun, Flocky. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having Good me. Good to see you again, AJ. Yeah. Well, until next time, Max out. Yeah, thanks. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.